0: I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, immigration and jobs in America.
1: You know, it's a tough job.
0: Bill Lowe is CEO of Chicago Methodist Senior Services, and right now he's desperate for more certified nursing assistants to do entry-level work in his skilled nursing and assisted living facilities.
1: Our CNAs may have eight residents to care for on a shift. They would be helping with toileting, giving showers, helping with feeding uh, services to help regain uh, mobility. Right now, we're, we're paying our staff somewhere between 18 and $20 an hour for the for the CNA role here in Chicago. Last quarter, I think we hired 12 CNAs, but 14 left. <laughs> it's maddening. Uh, but I do think it's, it's the fact that there just aren't enough people um, interested in doing that work today compared to the need.
0: And the need is growing. Today, one in six Americans is over the age of 65. 40 years from now, one quarter of the entire US population will be over 65. Meanwhile, fewer babies are being born to replace them in the workforce and pay into the programs we rely on for retirement. U.S. businesses now routinely report having many more job openings than there are people looking for work.
1: I've often said that, you know, we can't grow food in America without immigrants. And I am 100 percent convinced that we won't be able to provide health care very much longer without more immigrants being allowed to enter the country.
0: The warning signs have been clear for years. The struggle to find enough registered nurses for hospitals and nursing homes intensified during the pandemic. Bill Lowe says Chicago Methodist Senior Services was lucky to have anticipated the need back in 2005 when it created a nonprofit recruiting firm to start bringing nurses here from the Philippines.
1: There's an excess supply of nurses in the Philippines. And if they can work, they get paid like $400 a month. So it's a big upgrade for them you know, to come here. It's an immigrant's visa, not a working visa. So shortly after they get here, they get their green card, maybe a year later. Uh, We never separate families. So if they have a family, bring them over like two months after they've been able to settle into the job and get some paychecks going. We provide two months of free housing to the nurses. So it's it's really a very humane and feel-good situation all the way around.
0: Why not do that for the CNAs then?
1: We want to. Uh, Julie, we want to. That's just that it's really, really hard to get them through immigration.
0: Because, says Bill Lowe, the visas Chicago Methodist Senior Services can get for nurses hit the congressional limit quickly each year, and they only apply to highly skilled positions. CNAs are not considered highly skilled enough to qualify. The main option for hiring foreign workers to do lower skilled jobs is a short-term guest worker visa. But the catch is, those visas can only be issued for agricultural jobs and seasonal work like staffing summer resorts. No dice for healthcare, construction, retail, and other industries projected to have the greatest need for low-skill work in the coming years. Those employers are clamoring for more immigration. And population experts point to countries such as Japan and Germany that are further along the aging trajectory and turning to foreign workers to fill the gap. But immigration is such a divisive issue in the U.S., it's been decades since Congress was last able to agree on significant reforms.
2: One of the difficult things about immigration policy is we tend to force two questions to be the same.
0: This is development economist and former Harvard professor Lant Pritchett.
2: The two questions are, who would we allow to be on American territory in order to provide labor services? And who do we want the future citizens of the country to be?
0: This season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. So today, are there assumptions embedded in how we debate immigration in America that prevent us from using immigration to solve labor shortages? Len Pritchett says, yeah.
2: We think of immigration as being exclusively a permanent thing. You leave one country, you go to another country, you stay. Most of it's, in fact, intended to be rotational. Most people who move actually don't want to move permanently. Most people who move want to make higher income, in part, to help support their families they left behind, and they often leave them behind for a period and then go back. Even the ones that come intending to stay permanently maintain deeply enmeshed in a set of networks and links with their home country, and so send money back to relatives, often after lo- even long periods uh, abroad, go back to their communities and create new businesses, new jobs themselves. So there's no reason why we can't have an immigration policy that for the long-term, mostly permanent, most expected to be become citizen, we focus on recruiting people on meritocracy. We want doctors, engineers who are going to come, move here, create their own practices, and stay. But for the low-skill half, there's no reason why we can't have rotational-type access to the U.S. labor market. Allow workers to come, work in our country for a few years under regulated conditions, and then go back to their home A countries. guest worker
0: program. Don't we already have that?
2: We don't have guest worker programs of any significant magnitude compared to what we have had in the past or to what other countries in the world have or compared to what we will in fact need in the future.
0: Now, a major reason the debate in the U.S. gets so hung up on these big identity questions that come with permanency is that the vast majority of visas we issue to immigrants each year are permanent. In 2022, one and a half million people got visas to live and work in the U.S. A million of those, so two-thirds, came with the chance to become a permanent resident, typically by having a relative in the U.S. or getting sponsored by an employer, The other third, so roughly half a million visas, were purely short-term, applied mainly to farm and seasonal tourism jobs, and offered no option to stay permanently. It's these temporary visas Lant Pritchett suggests we expand dramatically, both in terms of numbers and the industries that can use them. Besides helping with job openings, he says it would also reduce illegal immigration.
2: It's a bit like prohibition. During Prohibition in the United States, some Americans really wanted people, other people to not drink, but they couldn't prevent people from drinking because people wanted to drink. And then people realized, gee, we, we have a system in which we're generating illegality by trying to limit people from doing stuff that isn't so harmful. So we went back on Prohibition and said, let's have legally regulated alcohol, taxed alcohol, controlled alcohol access, rather than attempting Prohibition. Right now, we're in the position where lots of Americans, businesses and others like people that have elder care needs, want those immigrants here in America, and other Americans don't want them. If we could have a regulated system, we could eliminate the problems of the disorder of illegality while having vastly more rather than vastly less workers.
0: So rather than focusing on whether we want more or less immigration in America, Pritchett says we should focus on regulating the flow more effectively. With more legal pathways for migrants to work in the U.S., There'd be less incentive for people to pay human smugglers and risk their lives joining a black market labor force that is vulnerable to exploitation and drives wages down. Lant Pritchett taught for 19 years in Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's now a visiting professor at the London School of Economics and co-founder of Labor Mobility Partnerships, which helps countries expand their guest worker programs. To understand what expanding temporary work might mean in the United States, let's look where the majority of guest workers are today, the fields.
3: The placement of thousands of workers at the right place at the right time is an immense job, especially at harvest time.
0: America has a long history of using short-term foreign workers for agriculture, and it hasn't always gone well. I'm Julie Rose, this is Top of Mind. Hey, Top of Mind listeners, I have another podcast I want to recommend to you. It's from the BYU Radio family of podcasts, and it's called The Appleseed. It's a show filled with stories for you and your family. Each episode features master storytellers sharing all kinds of stories, folk tales, fairy tales, personal and family tales. So it's perfect for road trips, for bedtime, or really any time you're looking for something that the whole family can enjoy together. And the stories you'll hear will likely get your family sharing their own stories with each other, which is really the best part. It's the payoff. So listen to The Appleseed wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Farming is America's biggest industry.
0: The current system for bringing foreign farm workers into the United States has its roots in World War II. Large numbers of agricultural workers joined the military or found better-paying jobs, leaving farmers short-handed. So the U.S. government created the Bracero Program to bring workers from Mexico.
3: In Spanish, braceros means a man who works with arms and hands. But in American lingo... They are called lifesavers.
0: This is a promotional video from the Council of California Growers in 1959. Now, by then the war had ended, but instead of winding down, the number of braceros surged to more than 400,000 a year. Criticism surged too, that migrants were being exploited by farmers to keep wages low, hence the promotional effort from the growers.
3: The fact is that farm wages have gone up steadily for many years. But we still don't have enough seasonal domestic labor willing to do this kind of work. Conclusion Unless we have braceros to fill the gap, many stoop labor crops will be forced out of American agriculture.
0: Pressure from labor organizers and the development of new farming technology ultimately brought the end of the bracero program in 1964. But U.S. farmers still complained of labor shortages. And in 1986, Congress created the modern H-2A visa program, similar to the Braceros, but now available to workers beyond Mexico. H-2A visas are only for agriculture jobs. They last from two to 10 months, and there's no cap on how many can be issued each year. In the last decade, demand for H-2A visas has soared to rival the Bracero program at its peak. And that's where the trouble lies.
4: This is a program that was created as a last-ditch effort to fulfill your labor needs that's now being utilized as the primary solution for agricultural labor needs. And so when you have a program that's almost existed for close to 40 years without any reform, you're going to find issues and you're going to realize that that solution is still falling short.
0: This is Joe Martinez,
4: co-founder, executive director of Cierto. Uh, which is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to the ethical and transparent recruitment of farm workers.
0: Martinez co-founded Cierto about a decade ago while he was working as a labor organizer for the United Farm Workers. Cierto has been recognized by the U.S. government as a pioneer in helping companies ethically recruit H-2A workers.
4: It's a very bureaucratic process with a ton of paperwork and what I like to say death by a thousand details. On top of that, it is a very time-consuming process that takes anywhere from three to six months to prepare for, knowing that agricultural seasons have so many variables that you can't plan for.
0: The red tape can be an incentive for farms to hire migrant workers without visas, who are even more vulnerable to exploitation. The H-2A visa program has requirements meant to ensure guest workers get a minimum wage and are treated fairly, but enforcement is lax. Reports of abuse abound. During the years Martinez worked as an international labor advocate in Mexico, he came to realize that corrupt recruiters were a crucial weakness in the H-2A system.
4: I was a part of a multi-stakeholder initiative called Jornalero Safe, which is safe passage for migrants, where we went and interviewed approximately 600 families in 10 different states in Mexico to understand how and why are folks migrating. And what we realized throughout all of this information is that approximately 90% of the folks that we interviewed had had to pay some sort of fee to come to the US. These are folks that are leaving their families, leaving their communities of origin to come and work and miss miss all this time to be able to provide a better living. So then to also require them to put themselves in a more vulnerable position by taking out a loan, a huge financial debt that they can't pay right away, I think really starts to promote what a lot of folks say indentured servitude. What ends up happening is that a lot of these workers end up working their whole contract just to pay off the debt to be able to come to the U.S. in the first place.
0: The U.S. Department of Labor says no worker should have to pay for the right to come work on an H-2A visa. But Martinez says there's a problem of jurisdiction. The U.S. can't control what goes on in Mexico or Guatemala or wherever the workers are being recruited. And because corrupt recruitment is so common, it's one more incentive for migrants to skirt the visa process entirely and try to enter the undocumented workforce.
4: And so that's really what Cierto focused on is how could we create a recruitment process that brings oversight and verification of compliance all the way from the community of origin to the border and to the farm gate and back.
0: Cierto avoids the corruption and payment pitfalls by refusing to subcontract any part of the visa process from signing up workers on the ground in Mexico and Central America to ensuring they're treated fairly by U.S. farms. Throughout the chain, Cierto partners with human rights organizations to monitor the migrant experience.
4: And conduct three different verification surveys with the workers. One, when they're in the community of origin, did Cierto charge you to be there? What information did they give you? Did they coerce you at all? And so on. A second survey, once they've arrived to the farm, well is the contract that you were shared still the same one that you're working everything that you know grievance mechanisms and so forth and then lastly when you get back home you know uh were you able to fulfill your contract and so forth and any comments to improve i don't think we'll ever be able to eradicate trafficking debt punage and those issues but if we can create systems that are able to address them before they become endemic and systemic and mainly led by Worker Voice, I think that's where we have an opportunity to demonstrate how the H-2A program, when done right, can be highly successful, not only to alleviate the labor issues within American agriculture, but to demonstrate how rural economic development can happen to these foreign communities.
2: My name is Hector Benjamin Shokshar.
4: So hi, my name is uh, B- uh, Hector Benjamin Jokshar.
0: Joe Martinez put us in touch with Shukchar to hear what it's like to be an H-2A visa worker. We were interested to know why someone would go to all the trouble and the risk of exploitation just to spend a handful of months doing hard physical labor for minimum wage. Hector Benjamin Shokshar joined us by phone from his village in Guatemala. Joe Martinez interpreted for us.
4: Uh, I am from a small community in Guatemala called Santa Maria. Uh, I have been born and raised growing up working within agriculture. I have three children, uh, two daughters and a son and my wife. Uh, The reality is the work of agriculture in Guatemala does not provide enough to be able to provide a better life for my children.
0: Shokshar says he tried for years to get an H-2A visa.
2: Pero lamentablemente. Este,
5: pues como lo, como lo
4: there was an opportunity where I had processed my uh, passport and I had paid a good amount of money uh, with the hope and promise that there was a job for me in the U.S. And I paid everything, had everything ready. I waited for months and months, and then I found out that I had been extorted and that the opportunity wasn't real.
0: So when he heard that Cierto was recruiting in his community, Shokshat had his doubts. No,
4: no puedo dejar de decir que la desconfianza I'll be honest, I didn't believe them. Uh, You know, I've already been extorted. But when you don't have any other options, you continue to try and you hope. You know, you give thanks to God and say, God's going to strengthen me to be able to handle the, you know, the deception or the issues. And that hopefully one day I will be granted this opportunity.
0: And, And I actually was able to go. He worked from April through July 2022 on a tree and flower farm in South Dakota. Similar work in Guatemala would earn him about $5 a day. In the U.S.,
2: Eh,
4: Approximately while working in South Dakota, I'd get paid about $100 a day. Big difference. (laughs) Yes, big time.
0: What difference did that make?
4: One of the biggest issues before heading there was my daughter, who is 18, was not going to be able to finish school. The schools don't have the budgets to be able to afford to provide education freely for everyone. And so what ends up happening is that parents have to supplement that budget uh, for the school. And so all the materials, everything we're going to read, study needs to be bought by parents, the clothes, all electronics. So with the money that I was able to make in uh, South Dakota, she is now going to finish her schooling and she's going to be an accountant. Something that would not have been possible, and she needed a computer and the ability to be able to do that. At the same time, that also allowed for my son to finish his first year of high school and for my daughter to do
2: sixth grade.
0: Hector, you only stayed for four months. Did you want to stay longer?
2: (laughs) Definitivamente, pues creo que, como lo podrán ver, la diferencia.
4: You know, yeah, of course. As you know, it's a huge difference, the amount of money that's being made. Obviously, I want to be with my family, you know, and I want to be with my kids, but I would have loved to have worked longer so that I would have more money to be able to provide and to be able to support my children and my family more.
0: Were you tempted to stay longer without a visa?
4: No. You know, um, my parents raised me to be a very honest person and to you know, have integrity and, and, you know, of course you think about it, but no, you know, I really wanted to adhere and respect to what the visa was allowing me to do. And I wanted to make sure that I came back so that I have more opportunity. Um, So for me, and, you know, I'm going to come back to my family. So no, I wasn't thinking about, you know, breaking the visa to stay there longer. Um, But of course, oh, there's always thoughts about, you know, longer times.
0: Would you like to come to America permanently?
2: If I can bring my whole
4: family, that'd be the dream. It's not that I don't want to stay here. It's just there's no viable economic opportunities in my community that, that can make enough for us to be sustained and to live here. And so, yeah, I think it's a dream for anyone if they can take their family to a place where there's going to be a lot more opportunities for them to make money and for their kids to be able to do a lot more with their lives.
0: Hector, thank you very much for sharing your story.
2: Thank you for listening to me
4: and being able to hear from my perspective as a worker what this means to us.
0: Joe Martinez is executive director of the recruiting nonprofit Cierto. He interpreted for us in that conversation with Hector Benjamin Chokshar, who got an H-2A visa placement in 2022 through Cierto. Shokshar is eligible for another short-term stint in the US and hopes that will happen soon. Okay, so let's tackle some of the potential pitfalls with expanding the H2 visa program to more US employers with low-skill labor needs. Surely there are many guest workers like Shokshar who would love to stay permanently in the US if given the chance. Visa overstay is already a growing contributor to the undocumented population in the US, Wouldn't that just escalate with more guest worker visas?
5: There's this common belief that there is nothing so permanent as a temporary migrant. But the good news is that many countries have been very successful at, in fact, nearly eliminating visa overstay.
0: This is Rebecca Smith. She's executive director of Labor Mobility Partnerships, which she co-founded with Lant Pritchett, who we heard from earlier. They help countries design guest worker programs that avoid problems like visa overstay.
5: So if you look at the example of the New Zealand recognized seasonal employer scheme, which is much like the USH2A, it's a seasonal, primarily agriculture migration program. And it's achieved a less than 0.01% overstay rate. And they did a few things to achieve that. The first and really most important is making future visas conditional on timely return. And then if they do abide by those visa rules, having an option to return and re-enter that job on future renewals of the visa. So one of the reasons we see so much overstay in systems like the US is that there isn't that assurance of well-managed circularity. But if a worker is confident that if they abide by the terms of the visa and return home, they would have access to future visas, then they have a strong incentive to abide by that. And then there's a few other things you can do. First, you can have employers pay for part of the flight home to make sure that the workers actually have the resources to go home at the end of their stay. Um, you also need to hold employers and brokers or recruiters accountable by finding them if the workers that they're sponsoring overstay. So bring them in effectively as partners. And one of the things that um, Malaysia has done and a few other countries have, have considered is also having mandatory savings products that the workers contribute to that are only accessible upon their return home. The point being that these are all policy and design choices that we can make that ensure the outcomes we want.
0: How would this not just become an incentive for companies to keep wages low, to keep jobs um, unpredictable and working conditions less than favorable, I mean, what incentive would they have to try to improve the quality of their of the jobs that they are providing to people if they know that there's this sort of endless stream of of immigrant workers with easily available visas to bring in to fill those jobs instead? How how does this not just become a scheme to allow companies to exploit workers from poor countries? One of the best
5: tools we have towards that end is let migrant workers change jobs while they're on a visa. So one of the biggest problems, the, way, the reasons we see what you're describing, that exploitation you're describing happen, is because the visa is a precious and scarce commodity. And if the worker leaves their job, they lose their visa, right? And this is how most migration systems in the world are designed, right? Well, if you are a worker in that situation and you have vastly improved your income and life opportunity through that visa, you're not going to speak up, you're not going to leave that job if it means you're going to lose your visa, right? Um, So one of the best things you can do, and this has been tried in a few systems, is actually let the worker leave that job and find another one.
0: So their visa, so their work visa is attached to them rather than attached to the employer as it currently is in the US system.
5: Exactly. And so if you do that, then you introduce, you know, there's now there's bargaining, now there's negotiation, and it creates more of a level playing field between them and the American-born workers, because the employer isn't able to use the fact that that um, migrant worker really has no recourse and has to accept the conditions that they offer to negotiate against American-born worker.
0: I see. Um, If... If we were to have a lot more um, temporary migration into the United States, and if those visas were attached to the workers, it would give companies less power than they currently have. What would prevent companies from just turning then to the 11 million undocumented immigrants currently in the United States to do work that they could pay less for?
5: Yeah, that is a great question and one of kind of the pervasive complexities of the US labor force. And we see this in in several other countries as well. And I think the reality is that to make what I'm describing work, we would also have to have much more robust enforcement of our immigration and border laws. So it's, you know, widely believed that people who are strongly pro-immigration want uncontrolled or open borders. But this is actually exactly the opposite of what we want. What we want is strong control over our borders, who's in our country, who's in our labor force, paired with expansive and functional legal pathways so that we can sustainably bring in all the workers we need to fill the jobs in coming years. So realistically, that is the only way we can maintain public consensus and achieve agreements on letting foreign workers fill these jobs. Now, the challenge, of course, is as you're rightfully pointing out, that these workers are already here. Um, and I think the biggest thing that w- in that case we have to do is actually enforce laws around hiring undocumented workers. So there do need to be real repercussions for the employers who are doing that, which right now are only very kind of loosely enforced.
0: Why is that? I guess it kind of surprises me that companies can get away with it so easily. I thought there were like legal programs that say, hey, you can only hire People with a valid social security number, for example.
5: There are, but the enforcement of those systems is chronically and dramatically underfunded. Um, So while they do exist on the books, it is very difficult to enforce them, especially with kind of the, the very weak regulatory infrastructure we've put behind them at this point.
0: Rebecca Smith is executive director of Labor Mobility Partnerships, which aims to create better jobs for half a billion workers from low-income countries by 2050. So immigration doesn't always have to be a debate over who should be an American. And we've heard how a focus on more short-term migration could help with the many low- and middle-skill jobs companies are struggling to fill. But here on Top of Mind, we try to take stock of assumptions that might be operating beneath the surface of complicated issues. So have we, at this point in the episode, slipped into assuming that immigration is the only way to fill those jobs as America gets older?
6: Either we tell businesses you are entitled to as much cheap labor to exploit as you want, or we tell them No, your job as a business is to succeed by creating good jobs for Americans.
0: Another take on filling America's job openings is next. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. While we're peeling back layers of assumptions, here's one that I'll admit kind of blew my mind. Economic policy expert Orin Cass says it's wrong to assume that having millions of unfilled positions in the U.S. is a problem.
6: That imbalance is exactly the forcing function that we need to get businesses investing in the workers we have. And so we we should be celebrating it, not worrying about it.
0: Oren Cass is author of the book Once and Future Worker, a vision for the renewal of work in America, and he's executive director of American Compass.
6: We are a think tank working on economic policy and particularly trying to apply conservative principles to a lot of the challenges that America has in the 2020s. The core of economic prosperity and, and how we make progress going forward is productivity gains. The reason we are not all still subsistence farmers And we're able to do all the jobs we do in the modern economy. It's because people have become much more productive over time. That's what allows people to earn more money, support families at higher standards of living. And in recent decades, a huge problem in America is we haven't had enough of that. Productivity growth is way down. Businesses are not figuring out how to do more with less labor, uh, and I would say a big reason for that is because we keep giving them more and more immigrant labor whenever they ask for it. You know, I also think it's worth emphasizing that when you look at what employers define as job openings or availabilities, you have huge problems with uh, jobs essentially being listed just because if a good person shows up, they the company would be interested in hiring that person. You know, although the companies claim they have 8 or 9 million job openings obviously the world isn't falling apart because they literally have 8 or 9 million vacant jobs that their organizations need to operate and so it's it's great to see that they're looking for more people but again we come back to the exact same point which is what they're really saying is gosh we wish we could find more people more cheaply
0: so that leads you to believe that that they don't actually really need all of these jobs do you think half of them could go away if companies just sort of figured out how to be smarter, or maybe they got honest about they don't really need those positions filled?
6: Well, I think that's the wrong way to think about the issue. I think it's it's really useful to focus on a particular hypothetical business. Let's say we're talking about a hotel, and let's say the hotel employs 100 people uh, and also has 20 job openings. Right, they, they wish they had five more housekeepers. Housekeeping! They wish they had three more people at the front desk. They wish they had two more people doing reception bookings. They want a bigger event staff, etc. cetera. So they have 20 job openings, but the hotel is also running. It's not the case that without those 20 people, the hotel can't operate. And so what are they doing instead? Well, one thing they're doing is they might have people working more overtime. You may have checked into a hotel sometime recently where they tell you, uh, we're only gonna provide housekeeping if you ask for it. They may have put off some events they were planning to host or other things that they thought don't have to get done right now. And so they may be saying, we'd really like to have more workers, uh, but that's not the same thing as saying we can't operate with the workers we have. And the really interesting question to ask is, let's say they can't find 20 more workers. What are they actually going to do in the long run? Any, any business that is actually trying to optimize its profit and be successful is going to start looking for creative solutions. How can we be more successful with the 100 workers we have? Whoever can be most successful in doing that now is going to have the revenue and profit of a 120-person hotel with those 100 workers. Well, that means every one of those workers has become more productive and can be paid more. And that exact process is the process by which we become wealthier and more prosperous over time. And when you instead say, oh gosh, they need 20 more people, let's issue 20 temporary visas to bring in cheap foreign workers, you short-circuit it. And I certainly understand why the business likes that idea, but I hope listeners can also understand why policymakers should be dead set against it.
0: What is the harm? Expand on that for me.
6: Well, the, the economic consequence is that you see the creation of lots of not very good jobs at low wages, and you see a lack of investment and innovation in creating better jobs. So, you know, we do research at American Compass where we survey workers and ask them about the characteristics of their jobs. And we create a definition of what we call a secure job, which we think is a a fairly modest standard. We say it should pay $40,000 a year full-time, it should have health benefits and some paid time off, and it should have predictability in scheduling and earnings going forward. I don't think that's an an extraordinary demand to place on, on what we look for in a job, but less than half of the jobs in the economy that people are working today meet that standard for people without a college degree, fewer than a third of jobs meet the standard. And so one of the consequences of saying, well, if the economy isn't creating a lot of these kinds of jobs, we have a lot of, frankly, not very good jobs that people don't want to take that are low productivity. Let's just bring someone in (laughs) to do them. That's how you get in this situation. Uh, And and it's exactly the opposite of, of the set of incentives we want.
0: So let's talk about solutions. What's the first thing you would like to see done by policymakers to rearrange the incentives for businesses?
6: Well, when it comes to immigration policy, the first thing we need to do is actually secure our border. And by secure our border, I don't mean necessarily, you know, build a big wall along it. I mean, we need to actually have control of our immigration policy. Because if you just phase out, let's say, guest worker programs, while having millions of people coming to the country illegally, you will just create an even larger magnet to fill those jobs instead with yet more illegal immigrants. So actually having a sane, rational, functional immigration system requires a bunch of things. One is we actually have to have the capacity to monitor and secure the border and know who is coming across it. Uh, One is that we do need to address the asylum issue Uh, which is obviously being badly abused today. Um, And then you need to have interior enforcement. So you do need to make it the case that if you are in the country illegally, you can't work. And if, if that were actually true, you'd have an awful lot fewer people showing up and trying to get into the country illegally. Um, And then you need an an entry-exit system because a huge share of the people who are in the country illegally aren't, you know, sneaking across a border in the middle of the night. They actually come into the country legally and then don't leave when they are supposed to. Uh, And so you actually need to have a way of recording not just when somebody comes into the country, but also when they go back out. Again, all these are entirely solvable problems. There is no technological or philosophical obstacle here. It's just a question of whether we have the will to do it uh, in, a, in a political environment where the overwhelming majority of Americans want to do it.
0: With a secure border, would you like to also see America, see fewer immigrants overall coming into the United States legally?
6: So, so if we could actually enforce our immigration laws effectively, I think a very important thing to then do is to phase down and ultimately out these temporary worker programs.
0: To have them completely go away. Correct.
6: I don't think there's there's any economic rationale for having the kinds of temporary visa programs, either for low-skilled or high-skilled workers, that we have today. I think there are two places where temporary visa programs do make sense. Um, One is when you have essentially internal corporate transfers. So you have a multinational corporation that let's say, is based in Germany and has offices in the U.S. and a corporate executive or any worker wants to come and be doing something in the U.S. facility for a limited period of time, it makes good sense to be able to facilitate that. Um, The other one is if, if America as a nation is choosing to invest in particular industries where we don't have the native skills and don't want to wait to build them up. So what's going on in the semiconductor industry right now is a good example. If we hadn't just sort of closed our eyes and, and wished it away as we were losing all of our capacity in semiconductors, we wouldn't have this problem. But we are where we are. And if we want to rebuild that capacity in a reasonable period of time, then we have to recognize that we have priorities besides just good jobs for Americans. And there's a reason to bring in foreign experts, essentially, to help us do that. But other than that, I I have yet to hear an actual economic rationale for why temporary visas would be good uh, for the United States.
0: None of these farms that say they struggle to find people to harvest their delicate vegetables in the field that machines are not going to be able to do, like none of those, (laughs) we would get rid of all of those workers and just hope that the companies figure out how to get more productive with the workers that they can find.
6: Well, to be clear, it's not hope any more than anything in our free market system is hope. The whole premise of our free market system is that we want to solve problems that way. Uh, and, and I think if you step back and look at it, let's say you wanted to start a computer programming company and you launched it by setting up a bunch of crates in dusty fields and asking the computer programmers to work for minimum wage um, under those conditions. No Americans would do that job either. For some reason, we assume if you're a computer programmer, you're entitled to, you know, a a swanky office with great benefits and spend as much time as you want playing foosball. But if you're somebody who's actually picking crops, then that's just a job that should be terrible. And again, there's no economic rationale for that judgment that is that is purely a a really toxic cultural judgment that we've made and an opportunity we have to decide differently
0: what if the vegetables get more expensive because companies are having to invest more in the benefits and pay
6: the vegetables would get more expensive that's how markets work
0: and that's okay we should be all right with that
6: we should be all right with that we should expect to pay for our food what it costs to harvest our food And if we do that across the economy and actually recognize that there are lots and lots of low-skilled jobs that we have become accustomed to paying less for because we are simply not considering what it costs to provide that within America in a way that provides Americans with secure jobs, then yes, some things will get more expensive, but an awful lot of of upper-income people will also be paying those higher prices and all of the benefit is going to go to the lower-income folks who would actually see the higher wages. And that is a trade-off we should embrace.
0: What would we do in, in terms of reforms? What would you propose that we do for the individuals who are already here um, without citizenship or visa status in the United States?
6: Well, in my view, it should depend upon how long they've been here. Um, I think there are a lot who have been here for you know decades. Uh, and and that America and Americans need to accept that that we bear some share of the responsibility for setting up and and believing that we were benefiting from that system. Um, at the same time, I think as you have, you know, particularly in the last couple of years, more and more people coming who are here recently uh, and quite plausibly can leave again they should probably have to do that. So we should issue temporary work permits to people who have only been here for a few years. But those expire after a few years, which means they are going to have to make plans for and, and prepare to leave. Uh, and assuming that that actually happens and and we have a functioning system, we are able to enforce our laws, those who did have to leave left then at that point, I think we can and should move forward with allowing those who have already been here a long time to stay permanently and move into legal status.
0: Uh, Mr. Cass, what about the the fact that demographers tell us this is only going to get worse, but America, like many wealthy countries, is, is getting older. We're having fewer babies. A lot of our growth in the last couple of decades was because of the immigration that's been coming into the United States. So how do the proposals that you've laid out... Um, Sustain our needs as we continue to get older,
6: well, look, I think immigration as a solution to, to demographic problems is is pretty nonsensical. Immigrants and and certainly their children move very quickly to the same fertility levels of the native population. And so you can push the problem off another generation, but a generation later, you're going to be looking around and saying the exact same thing. Our fertility levels are too low. Now we have to bring in even more immigrants. Um, If you are actually concerned about fertility rates in a country, the only way to address it sustainably is to understand why that is the fertility level in the country and what changes you might have to make uh, if if you want to have a higher fertility level in the country. Such as oh, there are lots of things we can and should be doing to encourage higher fertility. I think, you know, some of them are are in the policy realm. Um something like we work on a lot at American Compass is is the idea of a family benefit that that provides more resources to working families as they're raising kids. Um, you know, this broader concept of of secure jobs. I think it's incredibly important as much as we have a fertility problem we have a family formation problem people aren't getting married in in the first place and so actually creating the economic foundations in which people um can have the confidence and aspiration to get married start a family be able to support it should be a huge economic priority which ironically our immigration policy today directly undermines and then there's also the cultural element of it which is that if if we want more kids, we need to value having kids and focus on the fact that it is it is indispensable and irreplaceable to be a nation that is forming families and raising a next generation.
0: Is there anything that you think the U.S. government policymakers should be doing to, could be doing to encourage some of the folks who are sitting on the sidelines who could be working but are opting not to, to try to bring some of those people back into the workforce?
6: Yeah, the, the problem of people, especially prime-age men outside of the labor force, is is a huge one and, and one that policymakers certainly have to focus on. I mean, it, we have a huge problem with millions and millions of men who in the past likely would have been working now out of the labor market entirely. I mean, the share of prime-age men ages 25 to 54 uh, who are not working today looks like the bottom of a deep recession. It would basically be the, the worst number on record going back to the 1950s. You know, I, I think a huge part of it, actually, where we need to focus is, is on the front end, where we think about, you know, what connects somebody to that first job? What puts them on the pathway toward a successful working life? And and a place where we've gone terribly off track is, is with what, what we call the sort of college-for-all mentality. We've converted our high schools into college prep academies. We've plowed all of our resources into subsidizing higher education. And if you don't go to college, we shrug and say, all right, well, then good luck to you. Um, and I, for one thing, that's just incredibly inequitable. I mean, if anything, it's those who aren't on the college pathway who who need and, and deserve more of our support, um, it's also in, incredibly ineffective. Um, close to half end up in a job that didn't require a degree anyway. So we are actually massively overproducing college graduates relative to, to the sorts of jobs that are available. And so a, a huge shift both in mindset, in resources, in, in programs to say, look, college, college is a great path for some people and we should support people who are on it. But we should be doing at least as much to create pathways that say, you know, by the time you're a junior and senior in high school, you're spending some time on the job. You're learning real skills. First couple of years after high school, we're going to subsidize your employment pretty heavily for, for less than it costs us to to pay for you to be in college. Uh, and we can get you to age 20 with real on-the-job experience, uh, an industry credential, and money in the bank instead of debt. That's, that is that is totally achievable, uh, and yet something we have just not even attempted in this country. You know, obviously, this doesn't address the problem of of the 40-year-old necessarily. But going forward, I think that that is a huge part of the solution. And then even for that 40-year-old, if you actually start to build things like subsidized employment for trainees and employers, you know, we were talking about those employers who right now can think of nothing except begging for more cheap labor, if employers get in the habit with public support of actually hiring people who don't have the skills and training them, well, all of a sudden that becomes something that you can plug the 40-year-old into as well. And so in a sense that, you know, it, it is not directly an immigration problem, but it speaks to the way that uh, our attitude on immigration is a part of, of just our incredibly dysfunctional way of approaching the labor market.
0: Oren Kass is executive director of American Compass. He's author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Mr. Kass, thank you so much for your time today.
6: Oh, this was great, thank you.
0: Okay, so here's one last assumption to challenge about immigration and jobs. We have been primarily looking at this from the perspective of what immigration can do for us and our economy. Rebecca Smith at Labor Mobility Partnerships thinks that's a mistake.
5: We have too few workers, but that's only one half of it, right? Around the world in many low-income countries, there are far many more youth entering the working force um, than are going to be able to expect to get jobs in their home countries. I think it can be difficult for those of us born in the U.S. to understand how difficult life can be in low-income countries and what an absolutely transformational opportunity working in the U.S., even in a low-wage job, can be. The average worker from a low-income country doing the exact same job in the U.S. that they did in their home country can expect to increase their income by 10 to 15 times. So that makes migration one of the most powerful and dramatic um, poverty alleviation programs we have in the world. So when you graph that impact against the impact of all foreign aid, all development programming and assistance and charity, you can't even see the impact of the foreign aid on the graph next to the impact of migration.
0: So you're saying that we could more effectively address poverty, extreme poverty in countries around the world if if we just allowed those people to go work somewhere where they could make a lot more money doing the same thing?
5: That's exactly what I'm saying those wages earned abroad immediately translates into massive improvements in quality of life for the migrant workers and their families. So that goes immediately into children's education. It goes into life-saving health care and investments in long-term health. It goes into new houses and business investments. And you see the, those impacts long after the migration experience itself has ended.
0: So do you see the value of mobility programs like this primarily as a, an efficient way for countries like the United States to address a need, or is it primarily a way to address global poverty?
5: The great thing is it's both at the exact same time. We can secure a future of shared prosperity for those of us who are born in high-income countries and would like them to continue to be prosperous and comfortable, and for people born in low-income countries who want the opportunity to dramatically improve their own incomes and create a better lives for their families.
0: That's Rebecca Smith, Executive Director of Labor Mobility Partnerships. We also heard from her co-founder, Lant Pritchett, arguing in favor of more guest workers. Oren Cass at American Compass made the case for fewer guest workers, so businesses have an incentive to get more productive and create better jobs. We also heard about the challenges with America's largest existing guest worker program and how to improve it from Joe Martinez of the farm worker recruiting firm Cierto and Hector Benjamin Shokshar, who's been an H-2A visa worker. And all the way back at the start of this episode, Bill Lowe at Chicago Methodist Senior Services talked about the pressing need for nursing assistants to care for aging Americans. So what do you think? Which costs and benefits, needs, and opportunities do you think the US ought to prioritize when it comes to immigration and the job market? We would love to hear your thoughts. Email topofmind at byu.edu or connect with us on social media. We are at Top of Mind Pod. Incidentally, in season three of the podcast, we did an entire episode on how asylum fits into the U.S. immigration challenge. Find that on our podcast feed or online at of topofmind. Top of Mind is a BYU radio production. Today's episode was produced by Elena Beck and me with help from James Hoops and Samuel Benson. We had sound design and engineering by Spencer Hewitt, Kelsey Ney and Trent Reimschusel. I'm Julie Rose, we'll talk soon.